Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We're glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. Well, we have, uh, we, we're kind of going through the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Uh, two weeks ago, we started at the beginning. And notice that uh, he gives thanks to those who have been faithful to the church. And, and it was fitting for us to recognize and remember on that Sunday those who have gone before us and uh, those who have served so uh, lovingly and carefully in this church. And this uh, next section, I, I think, uh, folks, a little bit on what's going on, how we are faithful today. I know when we read it, that'll come as a little bit of a shock, but we'll get there, I assure you. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to read this for you as well. It says, As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to Him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the church, in, in the truth. For this purpose, He called you through our proclamation of the good news, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast to the traditions you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope. Comfort your hearts, strengthen them in every good work and word. Often when we hear this scripture, anytime I've heard this scripture, it's always had to do with the future. It's always had to do with a lot of guesswork. Trying to figure out who... Paul is talking about. Who is this lawless one? Things are getting scary. 
This, this, this is, uh, like, I remember this has been a topic of conversation. The lawless one, someone who comes sometime in the future, and it's just before Jesus comes back, and, and this person is going to cause destruction and, and turmoil, and, and just lots of ink has been spilled guessing at who this was. From my childhood, it was uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. He even had a mark on his head, which coincided with another scripture. Remember that? It was, um, uh, it, it, was, it was different rulers of uh, just about any time. I, I, think it's been, I think it's been the president just about every election. Um, and so, like, like, it's always, it's always someone. And, and usually when I look at this, I find myself saying, okay, uh, you, it, it at first led to great skepticism. Okay, I'm done. I'm done playing the guessing game, right? I'm done kind of like doing, uh, doing that. And I uh, found myself thinking, as, as I look at this more and more, that I don't think Paul was doing a guessing game either. I don't think Paul was trying to guess who that was. I, it, it, we'll get to this a little bit more, but I, I think Paul had an idea, and I think the church had an idea as well, of what he was getting at when he talked about the lawless one and, and the fact that Jesus was coming afterwards. And I want to suggest that with that in mind, that this chapter has less to do with an unknown future and more to do with how we live our faith today and in the present and how things are happening today, right now. Some of you might be saying, well, pastor, well, how do you know that? Well, it's in the sermon title. The sermon's called Chosen for the Present. Uh, but no, but, no, really, it's more than just that. It's a conviction, too. I really think that um, this has a lot to do with how we live out our faith. Um, I remember my first church, I, I was asked to go speak with a gentleman uh, who, uh, about his faith and um, his wife was real concerned. She had been coming to our, our church, and, and she said, hey, can you go talk with my husband? Because he's not a believer, and he needs to be. And I said, well, if that isn't going to be an uncomfortable conversation. But, but I said, okay, I'll go talk with him. And I remember sitting down with him, and we're, we're, we're talking back and forth. Just so you know, getting me to do that is not a guarantee, but we'll have a good conversation. Uh, but so anyway, we had a good conversation. We're talking, and, uh, and th- this gentleman one time says to me at one point in time, says, you know what? Uh, you've asked me about what I believe, and you asked about, uh, you've talked a little bit about the promise of heaven, but what if, he, said, he says to me, he says, what if heaven is what we make out of our life here on earth? And my first thought was, wait, heaven is a place on earth? You know that song too by Belinda Carlisle? <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay. But no, I, did, I didn't say that, I just thought that. Uh, and, but I've heard that idea before, this, this idea of um, we make heaven out of what we do with our life here, and we create the best situation we can here. It's also an idea that isn't new to the church. In fact, Paul is addressing that in some way here in Second Thessalonians, because it starts in the first couple verses, he says... As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together, he says, don't be quickly shaken, don't be alarmed, but anyone who says the day of the Lord is already here. He's dealing with those in the church who are saying, what if this is all we got? And what if we're just making the most of what we can right now? And, and so they started to say things like this, this idea of a resurrection, this idea that Jesus is coming back or the day of the Lord's in the future. There were people in the church that were saying, no, we think it's already here. We're living it right now. And, and, and they came about this in a couple ways. One of the ways was, was a philosophy of that time that kind of like made faith just a construct of the mind. 
And so a resurrected life was just a, a state of mind. It was just seen as a figure of speech. And so, they, so for them, a resurrected life is just like living positively and in anticipation. And Paul says, don't listen to them when they say that. He says, no, we actually believe the testimony of the disciples who say, no, uh, Thomas put his hands where the wounds were. And Jesus, when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when Jesus said, I'm going to come back, he actually meant it. Uh, and that there were people who, who also, uh, some have suggested that as Paul talked about what the power of God can do in our life, that God can take someone who is an absolute sinner and turn them around and say, okay, I don't want to live that way anymore. And I'm living completely dedicated to God and be freed from the sins of the past. So I, so I've, I've seen people, known people, and people have testified to me about being addicted to something before and then being released from it so that they no longer want that cigarette or that drink or that behavior anymore and say, I am completely free to God. That this is a testimony of what the Holy Spirit can do in your life. And they were experiencing that in the early church as well. People who were saying, hey, I've been freed from my sins. Uh, I believe in Jesus Christ for the resurrection. But they started to talk about the saved life as resurrected life. The idea that the old way of life was the way of the flesh and the new way of life after confessing our sins is resurrected life. As if the resurrection has already been fulfilled just by receiving the Holy Spirit. Now the good news is they had a great idea of the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit to believe without a doubt God can save us from our sins and God can release us and save us from the powers of this world. That's awesome. But the church has always testified to, from the disciples to Paul, that when, when Jesus is raised from the dead, it is not a figure of speech. It is a, resur- it is a real bodily resurrection that we are invited to participate in and that in, in faith we are promised to join with Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father after the resurrection. There is a real future for this. So Paul says right away to the church in Thessalonians, don't be deceived by every word or letter or by every spirit. doesn't matter how gifted he is. It doesn't matter whether he, says, he, he seems to be talking about the power of the Spirit and what God can do in your life. There is still a resurrection and a day of the Lord when evil is finally taken care of in this world. Paul is convinced that when Jesus said he'd return, that this was a truth to be embraced, not just a figure of speech. But why might they believe this? I think in some ways it's because they were realizing it's going to be hard to kind of overthrow the powers that be right now. They understood how hard things were around them. When uh, we read in the psalmist about uh, how uh, watch out nations because uh, a God is watching over you. Yeah, they understood that. When uh, uh, they, they found themselves wondering, okay, what do things look like? What, what, what is this day of the Lord going to be like? And they're, they're asking questions because right now all they see is hardship. All they see right now is the struggle of the church just wasn't even accepted in, in their societies and in their communities at that time. And I don't think Paul wanted to pinpoint for them a lawless one. Like the lawless one. I think, I think when Paul 
talks about a lawless one that's to be revealed and talks about that work, I think, uh, I think the church has a good idea of who he's talking about. I think the church has a good idea of, of, of what that looks like. They don't have to imagine too much because they're seeing it. And all of their rulers continually, again and again, this kind of affliction. In fact, he even borrows language that we've heard before. In verse 4 of our reading, he says, This one opposes and exalts himself above every god, an object of worship. That phrase, he exalts himself up above every god, is used in the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel chapter 11. Now you might remember a few weeks ago, we kind of went through some passages of Scripture from the Old Testament that were quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. We kind of did that whole series and we spent some time in Daniel. One of the things I said about the book of Daniel in that chapter was you could go through the different people they said were going to come up and just like, and you could just like match them up with history about, oh, this Caesar, this Caesar, this Caesar, and it just fits. And in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, he speaks about one of them in the same way. He will exalt himself above every god. And there's a phrase about a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, a guy who set up in the temple a pig to be worshipped, sacrificed to Zeus, a pig to be sacrificed in worship to Zeus, and, and that he set himself up as a ruler and set himself up as defiling this temple. And so one of two things is happening here. Either Paul is purposely borrowing language from the prophet Daniel to say, the, the lawless ones that we experience today or the lawless one we will experience is not going to be any different than what we've experienced before. In fact, he might be using this language as a kind of reference, an archetype of what leadership looks like. This this guy who came in, destroying the temple, defiling it. And yet, the people of God rose up against him. That story's in in Maccabees, in in, in our Catholic Bibles. But uh, 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 that story is of people rising up against this. And, And there's this idea, as hard as things are, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a liberation again of, of, of any lawless one right now. And, and in their immediate history, and so it's either he's, he's using Daniel as a kind of in this, in this figure as, as a reference point, or, or my other thought is this, that phrase that was used in Daniel and is being used again here is a colloquial phrase just used to talk about the kind of wicked leadership taking place in their midst in which they use this phrase to say, oh, he's elevated up above all the other gods as a way of condemning and showing they're not who they need to be. In their time, there was... um, So the book, uh, Paul's letters are generally understood to be written before the Gospels were written. Uh, The Gospels were largely shared word of mouth. And so uh, right around uh, just before this letter is written, there was a Caesar... Uh, he had a really long name. He had like four or five titles. Uh, his nickname was Caligula. He uh, was a very wicked ruler. He only lasted about four years. Uh, at first, they thought things might be okay, but then he had like he went into a coma for a couple months, and when he came out, his he was just crazy. He uh, 
Uh, he was engaged in all kinds of debauchery, all kinds of violence. Anyone who uh, he just thought uh, looked at him sideways, he'd have killed. He was scary. They called him crazy, mad. And uh, he, he had a mission where he had decided what he was going to do was he was going to put his image in the temple of Jerusalem. And he was going to have that there so that emperor worship would continue. But he was assassinated just before he could enact that. And I can't help but think Paul has this in mind. Now, even if it's, it's long gone, it's so close Within like 10 years of him writing this, he can remember this and everybody can remember this as well as we can remember, uh, you know, previous elected officials in the last 10 years. They know this. They remember this. They experienced this. They were scared of this. And it's not that he thinks the lawless one has already come or that it can be pinpointed to this guy. But when Paul talks about a lawless one, People at his time, people in Thessalonians don't, Thessalonica don't have to think too hard and wonder too much about, I wonder who Paul's talking about. They've seen it. They know it. Oh, the lawless one? You mean like the last guy we had? Most likely they think immediately to like Caligula. And they think, well, surely we're not going to get someone as bad as him, are we? But Paul lets them know it is incredibly likely. Indeed, it's a part often of the workings of our world that this, indeed, we often see more of the same. And indeed, for the next couple hundred centuries, the church is going to see work worse. And so he says to them, he says, you know, the mystery of lawlessness is at work. In verse 7, he says, things are, are already in place. And I, and I think that uh, we can see that as well. And I don't think we have to see that in a particular figure either. I think we see that whenever we see sin still attacking those who profess belief. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. Whenever we think uh, someone thinks it's an, a good idea to rebel against a really good law, a really good behavior, but say, oh no, not, not today. Today I'm after that person. Whenever we think evil is still at work and affecting us in our days. Yeah, lawlessness is still at work. Things aren't ideal, but could often lead to something worse. We can see, yeah, something seems to be simmering under the surface. Paul sees that as well. And about the lawless one, he warns about those who are going to believe in this deception. Those who are going to believe in the deception that uh, their leader functions as some kind of a Messiah. Their leader functions as the only person who can possibly fix things. The only person who could heal or unite their nation. The only person who could restore order. The only person who can provide for the people. In other words, the only person who can do the things that God does. And so there's a warning against those who aren't going to believe in the truth of salvation, but put their faith in a leader like that. I said before that a lot of ink has been spilled and I've looked at a lot of predictions that have happened over the last hundred years about who this lawless one can be, about what it is and who this future figure is. And it used to make me just kind of, uh, I don't know, wash my hands and I'd say, oh, I'm done with this prediction game. But I find myself thinking, as I imagine this situation in the church of Thessalonica, hearing Paul write this, 
I find myself thinking, what if it isn't such a bad idea that everyone keeps guessing at who it is? Maybe the problem isn't that they're getting it wrong. Maybe the problem is we're always getting it right. Maybe the problem isn't that it's just a lawless one, but to recognize that wherever power takes our attention away from our God, that it functions as the lawless one in our life. One commentator I read said, perhaps the question should be less and less about who's this lawless one, and more and more, Lord, is it I? Are we living today in the fullness of God's plan of salvation and in the fullness of his desire to lead us into salvation? And so when I was talking with this gentleman from my church about um, <laughs> heaven is a place on earth, um, I, I said to him, I said, that's, I said, that's a interesting idea. I said, very optimistic idea. I said, I think it's an idea that uh, really highlights, you know, uh, a good work ethic and and all that we've done to uh, get to where we are and all that kind of stuff. But I said, uh, I said, I don't think it works very well for those who face persecution. I don't think it works very well for the early church. I don't think it works well for those who have suffered hardship and have no possibility at all of upward mobility. Those for whom medical care, retirement, Relaxation is not even a dream. It's a luxury afforded only to those who have power. To those kind of people, there is no prospect of heaven on earth. In fact, any so-called heaven experienced by those in power is probably gained, at least according to them, by putting those very people in a kind of hell on earth, by taking advantage of them. And it's to those people, as well as to us, but it's to those people that Paul says, Jesus died and rose again. And that promise of that resurrection is for us as well. That when Jesus says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, I'm going to the Father and I'll take you to be with me. He's saying, as hard as things might get, as torn down as you might be, know this, God's eyes have never left you. Indeed, he welcomes you into something greater. And I said, into that, God has a promise of an eternal kingdom that far outlasts anything that we can possibly create or construct here on earth. Who are these people? Well, they're the abused. They're the displaced. They're the refugee. They're the people who say, I have no future other than that which is gifted by God. In Thessalonica, they are there, and it is the church. The writings on the wall with Caesars like Caligula before them, it's only a matter of time before the Christians are going to be persecuted, before they become uh, enslaved uh, in the Colosseums, before they become brought before the courts. And these words of Paul help them see in the face of the lawless one, God has a promise and a future for them and has called them to righteousness and truth. And so in many ways, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is absolutely about us recognizing where we are in our world and saying no matter how bad it gets, no matter how how wicked uh, powers that be might turn out to be, 
I know that God will be with us through this. That God has chosen us from the very beginning as first fruits, he says, of salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. What he's saying here is God has decided from the very beginning, I want you to be saved. I want you to be free from that way of life. I have a plan. I have a future. And I also want you to be saved from the sins that afflict this world. And that is possible because the Holy Spirit wants to dwell and work in your life. And we get to open ourselves up to that. A lot of times the way we think of God, and in many ways presented for us uh, in the Old Testament and and in various places is, is that God is so much holier, God is so much greater that there is no way we can even begin to imagine approaching or getting close to, to where God dwells. But he says to us here in this verse, he has chosen you as first fruits or since the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Which is a way of saying God's holiness is defined primarily by the saving work he wants to do in our lives. God's holiness isn't a, I'm bigger than you, I'm greater than you, I'm just watching for you and waiting for you to mess up. That's not God's mode of operation. God's heart, God's desire is, I want to call you family. I want to welcome you in. I have a future and I have a place for you. One of my... One of the uh, phrases that is stuck in my mind, uh, a, a, a theological uh, professor of mine had shared. He says, when we think of all the work that God has done, work of salvation on the cross, the creation of the world, he says, remember this, it could have been otherwise. It's just, it just a phrase. And I asked him uh, one time, I sent him a message, I said, hey, where'd you get that from? Was there some historical figure or something that you quoted from. Where did you get that from? He said, I'm pretty certain it was mine. And, but, but it just has stayed with me. It could have been otherwise. God could have said, I don't need to create this world. I'm good enough as I am. Holy enough as I am. Great enough. I don't need anything. God's very heart, God's very desire, part of, part of who he is, what his holiness looks like is this. I desire fellowship, relationship. I desire covenant with my people. That's what God wants. God's love for you is unending. He saves us through His sanctification by the Holy Spirit. His holiness is not seen as something, oh, can't get close to it. I'm just who I am. I'm just a sinner doing my own thing. God's too great and I'm just who I am. God's heart is to draw you closer and closer to Him. He wants us to experience his love and his grace and his promise for all eternity. That is how his holiness is understood. God has chosen us for that purpose. To be saved by the power of his Holy Spirit, to be changed and liberated from sin. And so Paul says to the church, stand firm, hold fast to what you've been taught, Because for this day, for right now, God is still at work inviting you and bringing you into his future and his promise. And it does not matter if the next guy is as bad as the last one or if the next one is the quintessential worst you can possibly imagine. The worst the lawless one can be does not match up to the saving and sanctifying power of our Heavenly Father. Can I pray for you?
Heavenly Father, today, we've come into this place of worship and we've heard this passage of Scripture many times and I think a lot of times when we've heard it, we've heard it with fear. We've heard it with wonder. We've heard it as a kind of watch out, there's the bad guy. And uh, Heavenly Father, I wonder if um, you might give us eyes to see like the church did. That the bad guy doesn't have to be a mysterious figure. It's whoever draws our attention away from you. It's whoever tempts us to look at one another with judgment and hate and disdain rather than love and grace as neighbors. Heavenly Father, it is my hope today that indeed your Holy Spirit will be with us drawing us ever closer to you. And Lord, help us to see, indeed, that in the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, we find, indeed, that your love has reached out to the forgotten, to the broken, to the crucified. And you have welcomed us into that grace and said, I will save and sanctify even you. Thank you, Lord, for that love. Thank you for that grace. Help us to live faithfully into your promise and into your hope. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope that the message has inspired you to draw closer to God each day. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve him today. 